All right, good morning, everyone. Rivers of living water. This is what Jesus said would flow from the innermost beings of any who are thirsty and any who come to him and believe. And John, who wrote that in his gospel, said that he was referring to the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who believed but not had, had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been crucified. This was not the first time the Holy Spirit had been mentioned in John's gospel. There were hints earlier on. In the first chapter where John is baptizing, he said, I baptize you in water, but he who is coming... The one on whom the dove descends, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Then in the third chapter of John, Jesus is talking to a rabbi named Nicodemus. And he tells this teacher of Israel, you must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Then we get to the seventh chapter, it's the Feast of Booths, which we talked about last week. And that's where he announces that uh, this Spirit will bring forth rivers of living water from with anyone who puts their trust in him. If you fast forward from John chapter 7 over to John 13, we begin a series of chapters. There weren't chapters in the original writing, but we've broken them up there along the way historically. Chapters 13 through 17, theologians call the farewell discourse. Because those chapters encompass the words that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. Starting in the upper room where he had washed the disciples' feet and celebrated the Passover meal with them. He brought them up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, knowing that his time had come. Knowing that he was about to be delivered up and crucified. And so he shares these important messages with his disciples his followers, then and now. And in those five chapters, you have five specific passages in which he talks to his followers about the Holy Spirit. These are important words for them to hear. And they're important words for us to hear because this is the power that he's given to us in his absence. In essence, Jesus is saying to them, That night that he was being betrayed and would be crucified the following day. Here's the plan, fellas. Uh, I'm leaving, but you're staying. That didn't sound like good news. So he had to prepare them. And he had to let them know what his expectations were in his absence. And what he was going to give them to meet those expectations. So let's consider them. There's an outline in your bulletin because this applies to us in Jesus' physical absence during this time. In Jesus' absence, he has high expectations for his followers. And by the way, I just have to insert this. These are for the followers of Christ. These aren't expectations for unbelievers yet. Unbelievers need to come to him, first of all, in faith and find forgiveness and salvation. But once we've come to Christ and been forgiven and we become his followers, then he has some expectations for us if we're going to live up to being the followers that he calls us to be. And the first one is this, trust me. Jesus expects us to trust him. 
And here's how he expressed it in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm very familiar with this passage of Scripture because I share this passage a lot at funerals. Because it's important for people who've lost a loved one to know that that person who put their faith in Christ has gone to be with Jesus, and he's prepared a place for that person. But actually, this message wasn't for the dead. This message was for the living. And not just about those who've passed on. It's about for us to live in this life and to trust him in the midst of difficulties because that's what Jesus knew was coming down the pike for these disciples. He said it's going to get really tough. Things are going to be difficult and bad, but you need to know that I've gone to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and receive you, and so you need to trust me in the meantime. And even if it gets really bad, and it did, because most of these disciples ended up paying with their lives for their faith in Christ, like many disciples in the world today are doing, actually. And he said, even if that happens, even if they take your life, that'll only launch you into my presence, and I'm preparing a place for you. In the meantime, you need to trust me. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and to me this morning. Whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, trust the Lord. Because he's preparing that place and uh, he'll come back and get us. In the meantime, don't panic. Don't worry. Trust the Lord. Secondly, Jesus' expectation during his absence is surpass me. He says this in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Because Jesus made it clear later on, he had to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit would come. He is saying to his disciples, I want you to continue to do the work that I've been doing here during these years of ministry. Three and a half years he'd been with them. But I want you to do even more. Greater works than I've done. We say, wow, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Have any of you this week... um, Maybe uh, given sight to the blind. Anybody cleanse the leper? Who among you raised the dead this last week? Jesus did all that. And he wants us to do greater works. He obviously didn't mean in terms of quality. He means in terms of quantity. That as we live out our lives as his followers, we're going to do much more than he was able to do or did or accomplished while he was among us. Because now the presence of God is in the lives of his people. For three and a half years, Jesus had been ministering, and the gospel writers tell us at the end of those three and a half years, there were 120 followers, devoted followers in that upper room. But they were waiting after the ascension for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which you read about in Acts chapter 1 and 2, And then when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they go out into the streets. Peter gets up and preaches the first gospel message. And 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and are baptized. 
All of a sudden, you have 3,000 people. A couple days later, it's 5,000 people, as even some of the priests in Jerusalem believe. And they've already done greater things in that sense. And as that fledgling little church grew, I mean, they were intimidated before. They were behind closed doors out of fear between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that little church, threatened by the Jewish religious leaders, uh, intimidated by Rome itself, a few hundred years later would eclipse Rome. The empire would be gone. The church would be growing exponentially. Now there's 1.6 billion believers uh, in the world today. And down through the ages, how many have come to Christ? Because greater things have been accomplished as, as his disciples have chosen to act in faith. I thought about our own little church here. And on this little island, this speck in the Pacific, and, and what's been accomplished through your lives and the lives of those that have preceded us through the years and the thousands of people that have come to know Christ through this ministry. The lives have been changed, the community that has been touched and impacted, but it goes way beyond this church because people move from here. They make impacts beyond here, but we have missionaries in far-flung places in the world. And I, I'd like to do a series of messages sometimes about what's happening. It's just thrilling to me to see the reports coming in from our missionaries. For instance, Jesse Yongmi up there in northern Thailand. I mean, when Phil Spaulding and I went there several years ago, a few decades earlier, there had been no identifiable Christians in that whole region among the various tribal groups. Jesse translated the New Testament into their language, and we went into those villages. It was like the Apostle Paul walking in there with Jesse because they, they were Christian now. They had a Bible institute, they're training leaders, and that whole region, uh, thousands, tens of thousands have come to Christ. And now he's translating the scriptures into the language of the Jerwang people, a whole new tribal group up there. Down in Bangkok, in the south of Thailand, uh, the Holmes family has been ministering down there and seeing unbelievable results, greater works that are happening down there than you can imagine. Uh, in the prisons, no identifiable Christians at one time, now there are hundreds and hundreds in the men's and the women's prisons, and they are just uh, moving out with faith, touching the lives of other prisoners. They're going into Muslim villages after the tsunami that hit there, seeing transformations, villages come to Christ because of the presence of Christians and gospel, the gospels that's gone in there. And they're affecting the tribal groups as well. And those are just a couple of the many missionaries that we support in significant ways. So Jesus said... The works that I do, these you will do also, even greater works, because I go to the Father, because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your lives. He's saying, trust me, surpass me. And then he's saying, obey me. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now remember, asking in Jesus' name, praying and asking him to do things is in line with the purpose of his mission. If we ask him for Alexis, 
Well, if that fits his mission, that'll be great. That'll be answered. But if not, we may question, well, was my motive right in that? But if we're praying according to God's mission for the mission of the Great Commission and people to come to Christ, you better believe God's going to answer that because that's right in line with his will. And he says this, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, we can talk about how much we love Jesus. We can sing about how much we love Jesus. But he says, well, if you love me, show it by your obedience. That reflects the love that we have for Jesus. So when we think about his expectations during his absence, hmm, how are we doing? What's happening in your life? I mean, is there a financial challenge that has had you worried? Maybe you're grieving a loss and you just can't get over it. Maybe you're struggling with a temptation in your life. It just seems to have a hold on you. And Jesus is saying, trust me, surpass me, obey me. And we're thinking, that's a high bar. It is a high bar. And you know what? In our flesh, we can't get over that bar. It's too high. You remember the Olympics this last summer? We saw a lot of track and field events and a lot of different kinds of of Olympic events. Uh, we didn't get to see too much of the hammer throw. I really got a kick out of that one when I saw it. But, but uh, did you see anybody doing the high jump? C- could you believe how high these men and women could jump? I don't know how high it was. Maybe it was 10 feet high and they'd over that bar. So what if Jesus' words to us, trust me, surpass me, and obey me, were like a 10 feet bar in front of us? Think we could get over that? What do you think, Kat? <laughs> Tough, yeah? Hard to get over that. So there are several ways in which we could respond to that. We could say, that's ridiculous, and walk away. And some people do that with the high bar that Jesus has set. They say, there's no way I can do that. I'm leaving. And others would look at that bar and say, lower the bar. And there are many churchgoers that do that. We look at Jesus' words and say, there's no way that I can do that in my circumstance. He doesn't understand this situation. I'm getting out of this one. I'm just going to lower the bar. Or we can say, hand me the pole and vault over that. Moving from high jumping to pole vaulting, you can get over a lot higher bar, okay, if you know how to use that pole. I was uh, checking out the Olympics this last uh, summer in Brazil and the pole vaulting. I remember seeing some of them vault, but I went online to see how high they were going. The gold medalist for the, for the women was 15 feet 9 inches. You see that railing around there, that wooden piece around there? That's 8 foot 6. So it's almost twice as high as that. And for the men, the gold medal was 19 feet 9 inches. That'd be over that banner there. You think, how do they do that? Well, they're not going to jump it. But if they have a pole, they can make it. And actually, the Lord doesn't expect us to make it uh, over the bar that he has set 
without what he without what he has provided there's no way we could do it in our flesh we we sang about that this morning i may be weak but your spirit's strong in me my flesh may fail my god you never will well how 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 are we going to do it through what he's provided the pole is in this analogy the holy spirit because not only has jesus given us a high bar in his absence high expectations in Jesus' absence, he's given us exactly what we need to succeed. And that is the Holy Spirit. And in these verses that follow in this teaching of his, he says the Holy Spirit is many things to us. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. Here's what he says in verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Imagine the scene, maybe something like this. Jesus leaves his disciples following the resurrection and 40 days of teaching. He ascends into the presence of the Father and he says, Father, I've left those folks down there with a huge task to win the world with this good news and this message I've given to them. And they're shaking in their sandals. They're scared. They think there's no way they can do this. But you said that you would send the Holy Spirit. I promised them that you would, so will you send the Holy Spirit? And I'm not sure if that's the conversation they had, but that's the essence of what Jesus said would happen and the rest is history. He did send the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. When he says that I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's the New American Standard translation of that word. But here's the word for helper in the original Greek language. It's actually two words, para and kletos. It comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside. And we still use that in our English language, like a paramedic who comes alongside. Or we talk about a parachurch organization, like crew or navigators or university that comes alongside the church and, and works with the church. Or parachute. I'm just kidding about that one. <laughs> you don't want to be alongside a parachute. You want to be under it, okay, and attached to it. But you get the idea. Para, and then the other word is kletos, which from the word kaleo, called, to call, call alongside. And so this meant calling alongside someone to help. And it came to mean by this time in history, uh, especially someone who would give you legal counsel. That's what was implied in Jesus' teaching here. There's a legal element in it. And so it's like this particular word, helper, Translated that way in the New American Standard, in the New International Version, is translated counselor. To give you another counselor. In the English Version, it's translated advocate. He'll give you another advocate. In the King James Version, comforter. So the Holy Spirit is all of these things and more called alongside of us to help us in our time of need. And when you think of that legal element, 
if you're called into court, you need a counselor to go with you, to represent you, and to defend you. I mean, when you're called into court, that's the time to stop telling lawyer jokes and hire one. And, and, and the Lord has said, he will be that for you. In fact, the Holy Spirit within us will represent us to the Father, and when the accuser accuses us, he will defend us. And when the world tries to convict us uh, because uh, it's convicted by its sin and we're seeking to live a godly life, then the Holy Spirit defends our lifestyle before the world. Even if culture shifts, even in a postmodern culture where, where we're told that truth is relative and that one person's truth is as valuable as another person's truth, the truth stands and the Holy Spirit defends the truth of God and the truth of the lives of those that are seeking to live according to His purpose and plan because this is the spirit of truth that will be given. Now let's pull that scripture up there one more time because Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another helper. Now that word another in the Greek language is very interesting. There's two words that could have been translated another. One of them is the word of is the word hetero, from which we get the word heterosexual, and it means another of a different kind. The other Greek word is alas, and it means another of the same kind. Which one do you suppose Jesus used here about the Holy Spirit? Actually, it's alas. He says, I'm going, the Father is going to send you another helper of the same kind as me, just like me. And though he would be absent, Jesus and is, the Holy Spirit's with us, and it's the same as Jesus. Now, we couldn't literally receive the person of Jesus physically, but we can receive the Spirit of God into our lives who has now come in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's the same substance as Jesus. This Spirit of truth is our advocate. He is our advocate, and this Holy Spirit is our coach. Jesus said in verse 18, chapter 16, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now the disciples, a few hours from when he shared these truths with them, they'd feel abandoned. They'd feel like it's over because their Savior, their Master, has been nailed to the cross. And even after they encountered Him on resurrection ground for 40 days and thought, now He'll set up His kingdom, no, He's ascending to be with the Father, they could have felt really abandoned. He would have had to have reminded them again and again, I'm not going to leave His orphans. I'll send the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, to be with you. And I thought about orphans and how they feel. And when we've gone on short-term mission trips, we've encountered hundreds and hundreds of orphans. And in developing nations, orphans are in a dire circumstance, folks. In fact, many of the kids that we saw in that Operation Christmas Child video, those are orphans. Many of them are. And they were hopeless before the church got involved in their lives and Christian people 
in indigenous Christian peoples there. Orphans in developing nations are relegated to the margins. Many of them become street kids in the cities, in those countries. Uh, others that are brought into a family, uh, they're told, well, you tend the livestock while the biological kids can go to school, get an education. But when these people come to Christ, when the church gets involved, they move from orphan status to having family. See, orphans, their future is hopeless. There's no security in where they're going to go, what's going to happen to them. In fact, relationally, they feel like outcasts. There's no loving relationships in their lives. Sometimes they're put up with. And even their daily provisions, they never know. They're going to get the next meal. And uh, they'll always get the leftovers. But again, when Christ comes into those families, when the church gets involved, all that changes within that family, but also within the family of God. And because they know that God is their father, and so do we, every one of us, if we've come to Christ, we know that God is our father, that our future is secure, that we have a loving relationship with our Father because of what Christ has done and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us reminds us of that. And even our daily needs are going to be taken care of. And Jesus wanted them and us to know that, that we're not orphans in his absence. We are secure in our Father's love. He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and look at this, and will disclose myself to him. I want to know the Lord. I want to see uh, what the Lord has for me in my life. Well, he said, if we'll obey him, keep his commandments, he'll show us, disclose us, disclose himself to us, and reveal more of who he is to us and what he wants to do through us. Now, he's our coach in that sense. Some of you have been coached in athletics or sports. Some of you have been coached in a musical endeavors or maybe dance or, or drama or whatever it might be. And a coach does their best to teach us so that when we get out onto that field or into that symphony hall or wherever it is or for the recital, we're scared but we're prepared because we have been guided to that point and are ready to do what we've been coached to do. Well, that's what Jesus has done for us to live the Christian life. He goes on to say this, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Wouldn't that have been encouraging to those disciples, knowing that he's leaving? No. He'll teach you this Holy Spirit, and he'll remind you. How does he do that? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in the church who've come to Christ Say, you know, before I received Christ into my life, I didn't even understand the Bible. I would open it up and it just didn't make sense. It was just words. But now I understand it. It makes sense to me. That's the Holy Spirit teaching us through the Word. But not just through the Word as we're reading it in life, as we're living it. 
You, you wonder in a given circumstance, how should I respond to my boss? How should I respond to this fellow employee who has, you know, just treated me so badly? How should I respond to my neighbor, to my wife, or to my husband, or my kids who are in this circumstance? Or how should I live in this situation where, man, I'm really in trouble uh, financially or whatever's happening? The Holy Spirit gives us instruction and then reminds us of the words of Jesus so that we can apply them in our lives. And that's what Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will be to us as our coach as we seek to live for the Lord. Too often, I think we think of it more like the sports scene where Jesus is our coach. We're in the midst of a lot of sports right now in October. I don't know if you noticed that, but football season's taking place in full swing. College football, NFL, and we're in the National and American League Championship Series in baseball and so many other things. But when you think about it, with all the sports that are happening right now in America, how many people are actually playing those sports? Not that many compared to how many are watching those sports being played. Those are spectator sports generally. And uh, they're out there, all these athletes who are exhausted and worn out, when many of us are couch potatoes who need the exercise, we're sitting there watching them. And we think that sometimes that that's the way it is in the church. That, oh, the ministry is to be done by the pastors and the elders and the leaders, the small group leaders. Actually, it's our responsibility to equip each person for the work of the ministry. It's not a spectator sport. It's an eternal endeavor that we are in all, all involved and engaged in when it comes to the Christian faith. Not only is it not a spectator sport, Christianity is also not a fantasy faith, as in fantasy football. How many of you are familiar with fantasy football? I mean, it's a big thing now. Uh, Charlie is excited about it. He's got a team this year. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to, it's kind of a diversion, okay. And uh, fantasy football, like there's 32 teams in the NFL. When you jump into a fantasy football league, it's on the internet, you get to choose your team from different teams, okay. I don't even know how you go about it, but you get your team assembled, but they come from all these different teams. And on a given Sunday, it doesn't matter how this guy's team did. If he did well in terms of receiving yards or rushing yards or whatever, you get points for that. Forget what his team did. And it's all about bringing this coalition of players together, and it's fantasy football. Some people think of the church that way, that it's the people that I believe in that are doing well and they're going to get the job done. I'll give you an example. I just heard recently that Billy Graham has led more people to Christ than any other person in history through the crusades that he has conducted. That's amazing. I mean, I believe that. And by the way, I, I've commented to Dee through the years as I've listened to some of his sermons. It's like, there's nothing new in that sermon. It's not a great sermon uh, in terms of, wow, the wow factor. I know a lot of preachers that are better preachers than Billy Graham. But God has anointed the message that he is preaching and touched 
the hearts and lives of millions upon millions of people. The, the glory goes to God. And Billy Graham would be the first to say that. But here's the thing. He's not going to accomplish the job. He's not our fantasy football player or fantasy faith player. No way. He can't do it alone. In fact, even at those crusades, you know who come to Christ? The people that friends have brought to those crusades. That's how people come to Christ. And then they hear the gospel and they respond to it. I mean, we can look at historic figures of the faith down through the ages and think, well, they did it, or this person. No, actually, they were just doing their role, but it was the ordinary common people, the church, and through each person's life that Christ accomplishes his purpose, not through fantasy faith, through our faith. A name that has been in the news even lately, uh, a contemporary spokesperson for the faith is Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was the quarterback for the Florida Gators some years ago. And he was great. He, he won the Heisman Trophy, led his team to two national championships. In the championship game against Alabama, he's the one that would put the black under his eyes for the sun. Uh, and then he would uh, inscribe a uh, scripture verse underneath that. During that Alabama-Florida game, he put John 3.16 under his eyes and they would focus the camera on him at times. And 90 million people went online that day to check out what John 3.16 was. And then they banned that practice, sadly. But he's always been a spokesperson for Christ. And he then tried to make it in the NFL. He did pretty well with the Broncos for a while. And then he, he, he didn't uh, make it in the NFL. So a couple months ago, he decided he was going to play baseball. And a major league team picked him up and put him on their minor league team organization. His first at-bat, he hit a home run. And in fact, you can Google it. It's on, it went viral. Then he went one for six the rest of the day, you know. <laughs> so he's not there yet. But he's living out his faith. And he told the crowd last Easter, a large crowd, that that's what it's all about for him, is living for Christ. And this last week, he was in the news again because he was playing a game. The game finished, this baseball game, and then he noticed somebody in the crowd was having a seizure. The other players were leaving the field. He ran over and was talking to that person, praying with that person until the paramedics came to take that person to the hospital. He was interviewed by ESPN the next day, and he told them, well, what I do for Christ on the diamond or off the diamond is infinitely more important than any athletic accomplishment I might have on the field of play. Well, that's great. And he's, he's rightfully a hero of ours. But he's not going to get it done. It's not fantasy faith. Praise God that he's fulfilling his role. Each of us has a role. We may think it's small. It's important that we live out our role coached by the Holy Spirit to accomplish in our circumstances what he wants us to accomplish. Don't minimize that. And then finally, not only is he our advocate, not only is, our, is he our coach, the Holy Spirit is our peace. Verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
It can be scary. Faced with our circumstances, the challenges that we have, we don't want to live it in isolation, cut off from other believers. We need to be connected with one another, praying for one another. But we also need to know, most of all, that the Holy Spirit's presence within us gives us peace. That's the gift that Jesus has given to us in the Holy Spirit. I was up at the hospital just yesterday, and uh, there's a man in our congregation who has a battle on his hands. Uh, it's actually a flesh-eating disease, and at one point it looked like it would take his life, and then maybe his a leg would be amputated, and now it may be just months of skin grafts, but troubled, you know, but he has faith in the Lord. I shared that verse with him, and he knows that verse, but just to be reminded of the peace that God has given us in the Holy Spirit, and uh, we respond to that as he did, just trusting the Lord, realizing I can live at peace, knowing no matter what happens in my life, God's got my back, and uh, he's with me. So we come to this point where we say, okay, what's happening in your life? Are you at a point, no matter what's happening, that you can say, I really trust the Lord in this. And, and, and I'm going to surpass what the Lord even did through what I contribute in my role as a follower of His. And not only that, I'm going to uh, trust Him, I'm going to uh, surpass Him, I'm going to obey Him in that circumstance that's challenging in me in my life. Can we say that? Not without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need Him. But if you and I will trust the Lord, receive that fullness of the Holy Spirit, we can walk forth in faith and see God do amazing things to our lives. I want to challenge each of us. Let's live in power because of His power that has been placed within us. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you don't know that Christ died on the cross for your sins and you've believed and received him, I pray this would be the day. You'd say, yes, Jesus, I want you in my life. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, thank you for your love for us. You know every one of us by name. You've known us from before we were born. You have a plan for each of our lives. Lord, I would pray this morning for each of us who are followers of yours that we would Walk anew in the power of the Holy Spirit, realizing you've given us this gift and we can trust you, we can surpass you, we can, we can obey you in the most difficult circumstances. And Lord, I pray for any here this morning that haven't made that decision that today would be the day that she or he would say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I receive you. Thank you for your forgiveness and the promise of your indwelling Holy Spirit. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.